I'm Grant. And I'm Dave. And this is The Commentary Cast, a podcast bringing you missing commentaries and first-hand insights from the filmmakers behind the streaming content you love. In this week's episode, we talk to director and cinematographer Mike Fumagnari about his film, To All The Boys, P.S. I Still Love You. Yes, Dave, of course, it is the sequel to the Netflix hit film To All The Boys I Loved Before. Uh, And in fact, this film picks up the story almost immediately where the last one left off. Uh, with Lara Jean and Peter taking their relationship from pretend to officially official at the exact same moment, another recipient of one of Lara Jean's old love letters enters the picture. Drama, drama, drama. Love triangles galore. Let's have a listen to the trailer. So who's this guy you're dating? His name is Peter, and he and Lara Jean would be together if it wasn't for me. Because he didn't even know she existed. But I mailed out a secret love letter she wrote for him. Can I talk to you? Technically, she wrote five. Anyway, he started faking to make his ex-girlfriend jealous. She went nuts. And cover up Lara Jean's real crush. And then everything got all weird, and they started real dating. They're totally real girlfriend and real boyfriend, and they are adorable. That's cool, actually. Well, that does look adorable. Doesn't it just... Based off the hit book series by Jenny Han and now part of a trilogy with the third film coming out soon. Yes, Dave, there's lots to cover off uh, on today's episode. Particularly excited to talk to Michael about the fact that he is, of course, a cinematographer and director. Uh, and it's the first time we've had a chance to, to talk to a multi-hyphenate with those skills. Yes. Well, before we do jump into it, though, let me inform any newcomers to the podcast how the format works. So Grant and Michael are going to be having a conversation while watching the film live. And if you listen for Grant's cue to hit play, you can watch along too, or just listen along at your own leisure with whatever activity you're doing at any time. Well, I say we get into it. Let's do it. Mr. Michael Fuminari, thank you so much for coming and being on our, uh, our podcast here today, talking about the incredibly popular to all the boys, P.S. I Still Love You. P.S. I Still Love This Movie and This Franchise. Good job, sir. <laughs> oh, I'm thrilled to talk about it. Thank you for having me. We, uh, we have much to talk about, and uh, I suggest we'll have plenty of time to do it while the movie is playing. So I say we shouldn't put it off, and uh, we sh- we'll hit play on this thing. I'll just give everyone uh, a second at home to queue up their Netflix, get cozy, get a hot cup of cocoa or whatever it is that they might choose to accompany this fine film. Uh, And we're going to hit play in three, two, one. We are away and we are watching to all the boys. PS. I still love you with the all too familiar Netflix logo. Um, A good place to start is usually like, how did this all get started? Cause of course this is the second in the series, but your first time in the director's chair, if I, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. And, and uh, so we made the first film a few years ago. And at that time, it was not a Netflix film. It was, it was awesomeness. And with uh, a team of filmmakers who I had worked with before, and, and it, was, uh, it was a good relationship that I had for years. And, uh, and it was a fantastic experience. But at that time, we had no idea that it would become what it became. And so there was no plan for a second movie, although there were the three books. So that existed, but there was no plan to continue that. In fact, the first film borrowed quite a bit from the second book. So to complete the first film, there there was a good chunk of material that wasn't available to us when we started the second film. So so it was a, a bit of a challenge to 
make P.S. I Still Love You and not have that part of the book to draw from. But still, uh, it was it was a joy to see the first movie blow up and then have Netflix say, hey, we want to make the second and the third. In a hu- um, it blew up in a huge way, right? So I, yeah. I want to talk a little bit more about that. So it was acquired by Netflix at what sort of point? And then or at, when did you guys first realize that you had something of a phenomenon on your hands? I, I you know, that started to track at the three or four days after it had been released and people were really talking about it and it became quickly obvious that it was that it was more than than even just popular like that it was something that was lingering and holding and and uh exciting audiences which was really cool and uh we felt great about it when we were making it it was it was a fun time and it and it it felt it felt like lana and noah were special uh when we were making it but you don't know you, you can't you can't predict that especially for a film that didn't have a release date and didn't have yeah. a distributor and like you you know you you just you do your best and and see what happens well it all turned out pretty well as the history books uh, say yeah. so you didn't have a distributor when you were making it like how did it come to be acquired by netflix was it trailers going out and and looking for buyers or was there a festival premiere do you know anything about that part of the story uh you know matt kaplan uh, uh the producer and he's the producer for all the films uh i believe was able to find the best home for it you know and where netflix was going to take care of it and make sure that that they supported it for the audience who would want to see it and so I, I don't think that was the only option but it was the right option oh it sure was uh and yeah. so then pretty quickly i guess everybody's asking when and how are we doing the second film yeah, that I think within a month or so, it, you know, probably was a hey, what, what's going to happen now? You know, how do we how do we take advantage of this, and how do we bring these books to all together? And and while, especially while there's a young cast, like they're still young before they become unavailable. Like there's a lot of drive and motivation to get those movies done and, and get them out there. Um, and so, in that sense. The, you know the the scripts had to be written the they had to be adapted they had to clear the schedules like all that stuff had to happen pretty quickly and and put on its feet but there was plenty of support for it and goodwill to make it work so we brought back as much of the original team as we could and you mentioned the challenges of adapting the second book into the second film when you'd already borrowed so much from the second book to make the first movie can you give us any more info about what exactly that process was like and how involved you were in that process the i i read the first draft of so uh fia alvarez who also wrote the screenplay for the first one uh she adapted jenny han's books for both of them and and it centered on, there are multiple stories, but it centered on the love triangle between Lara Jean and John Ambrose and Peter Kravinsky, which is exactly what you want. Like that's the most exciting part of it, right? And so, uh, but there were several subplots that, that could have cashed in on that as well. But ultimately what we, we felt strongly about was that we would structure the second and the third movies as second and third acts of the bigger Lara Jean Covey story. And so the second 
as most second acts are, is the messiest. It's got more conflict. It's got more character flaws. It's got, it, it needs to have that character growth that gets you to the next level. Otherwise, you're just remaking the first one, which is not what we wanted to do. It was, certainly wasn't something that I would have been interested in anyway, but that nobody wanted that. Everybody wanted to elevate it and watch these characters grow and do something that a lot of romance and romantic comedy stories don't do, which is tell you the story after the honeymoon phase. So where movie one was about the bubbly fairy tale, happily ever after version of their lives, P.S. I Still Love You is everything that happens after that. And, and so we, we knew the world loved Lana and Noah and Lara Jean and Peter. And so that's what you're sort of watching happen now is that we want to live in the bliss of their, their connection. And that the first 10 minutes of the film is us enjoying these two, because we want that for them. We want, you know, at the end of the first movie, they kiss and say, let's be a thing. And we want to see that. Like we want to see them be in love. And that's what my, we're uh, in preparation for this interview, my wife and I watched the film again, because of course we watched it, you know, the day it came out, uh, it was, a, it was the blockbuster of the year from her point of view. And she, I, she would have watched 90 minutes of just them in bliss, <laughs> I think. Uh, so it was particularly traumatic when, of course, you know, the second act kicks in and nothing is goes all that smoothly for LJ. Uh, I wanted to ask, you know, uh, while we were talking, there was that scene with the the floating paper lanterns. I, full disclosure, I haven't read the book, so I don't know. But is that something that a cinematographer says? Are you, you say, hey, this scene should happen with incredible floating lights in the sky? Or is that actually in the book? It, that's not in, in the book. Um, there are a few a few elements in this first, you know, there's always some some cinematic elements that are adapted just to take that thing from the book that that makes it work on the screen. And uh, one of one of them is is the lantern. And, and then we we can talk about that later, how that pays off, because that's one of the sort of important visual pieces of the story for me, where where uh, it's all about expectation for this relationship. And so I grew up actually really loving the John Hughes films and, and films like that from, from the eighties. And, and, and so, you know, you're talking about 16 Candles and Breakfast Club and, and one of the more sort of fun, fun, not take adolescent life so seriously versions of that was Adventures in Babysitting. And I always loved that opening in Adventures in Babysitting where where she dances around the room getting ready for her first date. And so that's not a part of the book and it actually wasn't part of the script either. It was probably just my own fantasy that at some point I would open a movie with that. And, and it felt appropriate for Lara Jean because she loves 80s movies. She talks about watching the girl, Golden Girls at one point in the first movie. And so I thought she would definitely know what Adventures in Babysitting was and probably had fantasized that at some point if she was ever lucky enough to have a date that she cared about, she would do that. And that's where, where that came from. It's just like, this is a fun way to open it and see Lara Jean in a space that we love. And then the lantern idea was about, it's about having a wish for this relationship, but that misguided, hopeful, dreamy fantasy wish that says, I'm not gonna let you down. Or I, I'm, you know, I'm always going to be in love with you, and it's always going to be great, and we're never going to break up, which most people who've been in a single relationship know is a fairy tale. To state 
out loud and uh, that wish gets sent up into the sky away from them. And there's a grounding to this process and this film that brings them back down. And then you'll see as we get to the end of the, the movie that there's this other elevation they, that is visually represented in the last shot of this movie that was really important to me as a, as a visual representation of their relationship. That at first they send their wish away and they watch it go and now they got to deal with it. Yeah, I mean, I know the shot that you're talking about and I look forward to talking about it in more detail because it it's one of those things that in retrospect feels so obvious, but I don't think I've ever seen that technique used that way, you know, to, to capture a feeling the way that you did it. Um, it's great. Um, so in the second film here, we're expanding out the world, meeting uh, other characters and exploring other parts of LJ's character and history. Um, what were the sort of uh, driving considerations that you had coming into a second film and going, okay, I don't want to repeat the same territory, be it visual, be it sonic, be it um, just the camera work or characters. Like, was there something in your mind that was saying, I want to make sure that we're always bringing something new to this on, on every level? Cause it feels that way in the end result. It, it, we definitely wanted to, to make sure that we were evolving and that the characters were growing and that we got to learn more about, about who they are, what they care about. That said, the language of To All The Boys is very important to keep consistent. So there is a consistency to the framing, to the color palette. Uh, and so that if you were to push play on the first movie and watch all three in a row, that you feel like it's a continuous story arc and that, that you would, you, it's one long, journey that you could have and not feel like you got you got pulled out of it because it was a different movie so that part we, we kept consistent I, I framed it uh, in that way that's a that's a bit of of a grounded performance and relationships but with uh, heightened uh, almost sometimes fairy tale or fantasy uh, like elements within the the frame and the color palette is also very controlled and, and heightened as well. Uh, as far as their relationships go, we, it was very important to us that we show more about Lara Jean's family history and specifically, you know, to her Korean family and, and that that's a part of her life, that, that it's not just her wanting to be in love or, or, or just being uh, the average teenager you know that that we care about her and where she comes from the um the look of the film which you touched on there is is something very different from your cv right like you have famously a long-term collaborator with mr mike flanagan who uh likes the the dark and scary side of the human psyche and you capture that so brilliantly in your collaborations with him like was this like outside of your comfort zone coming into this space when you shot the first film? Uh, or is this like you mentioned so affectionately your love of, uh, of John Hughes movies and the like, and I feel like you've captured that really nicely here. So perhaps this is a, a side of yourself that you really got to flex at last. Yeah, I, I did not feel out of my comfort zone at all. I, I love it. I, I adore the days where we're, we're living in, in this world. And the same goes for my work with Mike Flanagan when we're doing Haunting of Hill House or Dr. Sleep. I, I 
think that as filmmakers, sometimes and storytellers, we're considered to only be able to live in one genre or, or one space, but we love great characters and good stories and we're, we're capable of being chameleons in that way. And, and it, it was a, a joy actually to, to be handed the responsibility to, to design a look for these movies because the books give you all the character and all the, the heart that motivates these choices, but the books don't tell you what it looks like. The, the, the book paints the natural world of high school life. And certainly that's a different version of To All the Boys where you could say, oh, it's, that's the high school I know, or that's the bedroom that feels like everybody else's bedroom. But uh, I, I pitched that we go with something that was more graphically framed, symmetrically bound with, with a, a very specific color palette driven by cyan and magenta and yellow and uh, with little pops of, of red and, and blue here and there. And, and we went with it, you know, and, and that went to all the departments that was, went to wardrobe and set deck and art department and, and even lighting. Like we, we didn't break the rules, you know, there, we've, it was forbidden to have orange and purple, you know, it's like that, that's what we, that, that goes back to the first movie, you know, that, that was the lookbook that I, that I put together and we all agreed to stick to. And, uh, and it actually in some ways makes it not easy, but it, it guides you, you know, you know what's wrong when you see it, you know, it's like that kid has an orange backpack, get rid You're of it. You're out of here, kid, well, you're fired. Straight <laughs> to unemployment. <laughs> but, there, but there are, there are some times where we use those colors uh, specifically because of the, the upset that they cause or the conflict that they cause. And, uh, you know, the, having purple represents a thing or having orange represents a thing because our world doesn't have them. So, no, I, I, I found living and, and creating this visual world thrilling and, and it, it was fun for all of us. Where is this school that we uh, we are seeing now on screen? The high school for for uh, that they go to is Point Grey, and it's in Vancouver, where we we shot the majority of all three movies. And uh, actually, this is the high school where uh, I think Seth Rogen went to high school. I think it's the name of his production. Company. Oh, it is too. You're right. Yeah, and uh, uh, it's fantastic. It's it's been home to a lot of productions. It's a production friendly place, so I think you probably also see it in other stuff you know, on occasion, but, but the quintessential uh, we, American high school is in Canada is what I'm being told right now. <laughs> that's right. But it had the things, you know, when you, this is the other thing about that's really cool about giving yourself visual rules, right? You, you can identify the things that work for you right away or the things that don't right away. So when we are scouting for this, this stuff and you see a high school with a bright blue track, next to a big green field and all the other high schools are like dirt tracks or like kind of brown tracks. You're like, well, I want the one with color because that's the world we're building. We're not building yeah. super realistic one. And you know, all these columns that you see in the cafeteria, we painted them in our color palette and like little things that you do to, to just nudge it into this, to our world, you know? Uh, and, um, and her bedroom, actually her, her, her bedroom, with the mural on the wall, when you're, you know, when you're building a, a, a lookbook or you're building a plan, you draw from 
you draw from everywhere, photography, painting, other movies and TV, and you build this, this little package and say, this is what we want it to look like. This isn't a carbon copy, but here's what it is. And I, I don't recall where the image came from, but I came across an image of a, a you know, high school girl laying on a couch, reading a book. And it felt like Lara Jean, like somebody who, who lives in her head. This is, this is back to the first movie lives in her head in a private little space, her oasis, and she seemed very happy and content to have this book. And I chose the image because of the girl, because of what she was doing, but also because she was laying, I think, on a pink couch with like a yellow blanket, and the wall behind her was cyan with a flowery mural on it. And at the time, it was just the representation of the color palette, and it felt like the right image to put on the cover of the lookbook. And then I shared that with everybody and it became, without me even knowing, it became the inspiration for this mural that is now the back of Lara Jean's headboard. And wow. so it's that kind of stuff. You just make these choices and then the, the incredibly creative people like the set decorator and the art directors and the production designer and the costumer and like they, they take this stuff and they make it amazing. They just build these ideas that then become, you know, like people have Lara Jean's bedroom in their bedroom now, you know, it's, it's, it's very cool. But at the time it was just a, an image that represented color, you know? That's crazy, isn't it? That you can, you alone at your computer can make a choice that then influences untold thousands of people go and make choices in their own lives, whether it's like, Oh man, I really love Lara Jean's jacket in this scene or the, what she's done with her bedroom. Like um, the influence of a film like this, when it has become uh, something of a phenomenon this this generation's uh john hughes classic uh yeah it's no small thing and speaking of no small thing you've got two huge stars in this film both of which we're seeing on screen at the moment of course lana and noah like what was it like working with them uh, and what was it like working with them in the first film come to the second film not only because of the fuel and confidence that they will have had as a result of the success of the, their careers and the first film, but also just the the increasing amount of experience that they've they've gathered like over those years. Like they're a couple of years older, they're a couple of years stronger in their craft. Can you talk about working with them and the journey of working with them? You know, we we were touching on this a little bit earlier that, and when we made the the first movie, uh, they we didn't know where it was going, and they were immediately recognized by everybody on set as special and and individually and then also what they were together on on screen and so you know we even talked you know amongst ourselves with the crew it's like wow they're they're fantastic like the, you know you don't you don't always know that especially when you're dealing with relationships where they're supposed to be in love and I've been on sets before where the, the, the married couple as actors hate each other. They're good actors and they show up and then they, they portray the loving married couple and then you call cut and they walk away. You know, like that's, that's how that goes sometimes. And that's also understandable. Not everybody has to get along, but, but Lana and Noah are, are good people. They're good with each other as people, but then they're also terrific as Lara Jean and Peter on screen. That was true in movie one, and they're they're so talented and and good at what they do that bringing us all back together for PSI Still Love You really felt like a homecoming. So 
it wasn't it wasn't a whole lot different it was a lot of the same almost all the same cast a lot of the same crew and it just felt good it felt good to go back in those spaces like you know right now we're looking at their home and it's the same home we shot in the first movie. Walking in but that, those homeowners had you over a barrel. They're like, uh, "Yeah, you want to come back and film in here again?" Just add a zero to our location fee. Thank you very I'm much. I'm sure that that was. Uh, I'm sure that was. Well, we watched the movie. Thing. They say they, they <laughs> know right. that they're sitting on a good thing. <laughs> yeah, uh, but it all worked out. You know, it was. It felt good to go back in the spaces, and it felt good to be with each other again. I, you know, I can't speak to. I have only worked with Lana and Noah on on these movies, but they are good people with good hearts, you know. And I and I think that they, to to my experience, they didn't change after becoming huge stars. And what about like the the, the practicalities of sitting in the director's chair and working with young performers like this? Like, did, were you doing rehearsals? Was there a table read? Or because everyone knows their characters, you just they're dropped in on day one and they know what they've got to do and you get the work done and everybody goes home. We spent uh, we spent about a week and a half rehearsing and we we and they were they were the kind of rehearsals. It was a mix. They were kind of rehearsals mostly where we just talked about what the movie was. We talked about these relationships, like I mentioned earlier, that this is a story about about what it means to be in a real relationship that Lara Jean lived in in her mind for and and hoped that she would have this fairy tale romance she had read all these romance novels and thought I can't wait to have a real boyfriend and that everything's going to be cool then but now she's got to actually do it and doing that involves communicating it involves listening it involves it involves listening to other people, but also listening to herself. And so we really talked about theme and character and what it, where we were going with a lot, of, a lot of these scenes. And then we did rehearse some of the the heavier lifting because we wanted to feel good about it before we showed up. And most of that was, you know, there's a, there's a scene coming up in a treehouse where we get everybody together. And so we we brought ourselves all together and and. It was more than a table read. It was a few hours of working it out and and going through it. And this cast is a gift. You know, like they're they are very good at making it their own, but also making it better than what's on the page. So so especially sometimes we would just let takes run long and they would ad lib, you know, when you when you add such smart, funny, talented people to the room, you know, you get you get Ross. Butler and Madeline Arthur and Jordan Fisher. And then, then you, you also get Anna Cathcart on the family side and, and everybody just starts riffing. It's fun and it's funny. And John Corbett and Sorry You Blue, like they're all really good at comedic improv. And, and I would say that the longer you let the end of a scene go, the more you get these little gems that, unscripted gems that you say, okay, let's pop that in. And it, it makes a scene memorable has a nice little button uh i, I want to talk about bellevue the world's nicest retirement home <laughs> it's definitely where i want to end up but um but before i get into that i do want to ask about the journey from being a cinematographer to becoming the the director of such a major franchise like this and i'm sure many more films to come like what were the biggest shifts 
uh, in your own psychology and the way that you're approaching scenes and, and also just the idea of like, you're in charge now, you get to do it the way that you want to do it. Like, I want to let the scene run long because I know that there's gold to be found from these performers after the, the dialogue runs out. Like, is that something that you picked up on one of the other films that you've worked on and uh, wanted to bring to your own directorial style? Because one of the interesting things about being a cinematographer, of course, is you can show up on a set and be part of films far more regularly than directors often get the chance, right? You get to see other directors working and learn from other people's mistakes and successes uh, and perhaps create your own hybrid style. So very interested to know, like, um, yeah, what, we, what was the, the thinking behind your approach to directing? Yeah, I, I've been very fortunate to sit next to some very talented directors in my career before directing myself. And you mentioned Mike Flanagan. I've spent the most time with Mike and Mike is a, is a character driven, you know, story conscious director. He, he, he's always focused first on that and everything else is an extension of that. And, and that's where I find my work as a cinematographer uh, at its, it's what makes me happiest. And so, so that, I think that's why we've worked together so long, Mike and I. And so I feel like I've, I've been a part of that for so long. I, I kind of knew going in what felt right to me as a, as a director. Uh, you know, I've also worked with, with very talented directors in different genres like Julia Hart and Rai Russo Young, uh, who, who, directed um, Before I Fall and Julia Hart did Fast Color. And, and so I, I've been very fortunate to, to collaborate with them. And coming into this, I, I approached my work as a cinematographer from a story and character place, why we're moving the camera and how to light it. And, and uh, the emotional space of a scene is what's what informs my work as a cinematographer so none of that's foreign to me so breaking down a scene is what i was doing anyway i and to all the boys if you go back to the first to all the boys a lot of the camera work and the framing and the there's some dynamic movement to the camera there's some staging related to the frame more so than a lot of films do we weren't just putting faces in the frame. It was about when to pan and when to move and fantasy elements that needed participation with the camera. And so even the behavior into all the boys was more integrated with camera. So I had a big influence on how that came to be. And so I felt very comfortable stepping in as a director, especially because it was a language that I had already written and built in the movie it were actors I already knew and had built a relationship with. And it was a family of filmmakers. And you talk about Jenny Hahn and Matt Kaplan and Robin Marshall, who was incredibly important to sort of bringing the wardrobe together. And like all these uh, important pieces of, of the whole thing and people who wrote it that made it feel like the right time for me to direct. I had been reading scripts and considering it for years, but hadn't really wanted to jump in without something I felt passionate about until now. Well, speaking of passion, uh, of course, the, the centerpiece of this film is the love triangle that you mentioned before. And while we've been talking, we missed the introduction of uh, John Ambrose played by Jordan Fisher, 
uh, I imagine that the the hunt to find the perfect John Ambrose was one of the most important choices that you had to make coming into this film, right? Somebody that's got to compete against the Noah Centino. That was the scariest part for me. That that was the part that gave me the most sleepless nights was how do you compete with Peter Kavinsky and Noah? Like that, there they he became bigger than the character and it felt like without somebody who could matches the right we weren't looking for a match because that wasn't going to be interesting we wanted someone who was a was worthy of the attention for Laura and what was interesting is as we were going through that process it was about casting obviously because you need to find that person but we didn't put a we didn't put a label on what that person was even though the book did describe john ambrose as the model un kid who was a little maybe a little more like blazer and buttoned up and and a little bit more like a like a boy version of lara jean right and and that's cool and that makes sense and and uh you know even at the end of the first movie you see that character show up at, in the post-credit shot as a representation of what that might be. But like I said earlier, we didn't, there was no plan for a second movie. So that was just like, hey, isn't that cute? There's another kid waiting and wink, wink. Right? And that must've been pretty tough for that kid. Whoever, whoever played the role in the first film when he got the call. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I, I certainly feel for anyone who, who uh, you know, puts themselves into a role or puts themselves into a character and it doesn't end up, you know, kind of the way they want, whether they're not a part of it going forward or, or didn't make the cut or, you know, like that's a, that's a tough, that's a tough one. And it, it doesn't feel great, you know, and as a, as a person, like you want to sort of support it all. But I think once we are given the, now the role we had was to tell this story, right. Well, the and demands so, of the role are very different, right? Like yeah, you, you are a co-lead you know, in this. And, a real thing, exactly. Yeah. You know, like, and, and putting that together and wanting it to be right for Lara Jean and her journey was important. You know, and I know that all of the marketing says, are you team Peter or are you, you team John Ambrose? But the story is really about team Lara Jean. The story is what is her journey about the confusing personal elements around being so in love with Peter Kavinsky, but then having the confusion of feeling something for somebody else. And that's what, that's what it is. And we had, that had to be valid. Like we had, whoever that was had to be someone where you could say, yeah, I get it. Like that's a tough choice or that maybe not even a choice. That's just a tough situation. And yeah. that's what having a romantic relationship or a loving partner is. It's, full of that stuff and when we we uh went, went through a lot of auditions and um i'm a lot of talented people and sat with jordan fisher in the room before he read and just as a person jordan is is luminant like he's he's just this this presence and he's he's full of joy and confidence um but it's not there's no pretension there's no arrogance it's just just a good dude you know and then he read and we it was kind of a we all fell in love not just Lara Jean you know I'm always intrigued to get into the specifics do you remember what scenes he was reading for the audition yeah we did the we did two of them we did the bingo scene 
which uh, we haven't seen yet, but but uh, it's you know it's where they're starting to talk about their past and maybe maybe flirt a little bit. And then we also did the scene at the dance at the end, which which is the her confession that she's no longer with Peter and and John being honest. Uh, and then I, I think we also did the scene at the piano. So we, we did we did some heavy lifting just to make sure that we could see the full arc. Could he actually play the piano? That was some pretty impressive piano playing. That was John. Wow. John the guy's that. the full package. He Quite dreamy. That. He wrote it. That's what? His, that, yes. Wow. Because Joe uh, Wong, I, I said as I John. I said it. John, but that's his character's name, the Jordan. That was Jordan that did it. And yeah. the, the, the super bummer for me is that I, because, you know, we become really good friends and, and we got to know each other. And, and, uh, and what I realized the, the failure of my failure as a director and a cinematographer in that piano scene is that I never tied those two things together. I never, I never put a shot. Oh, there's a wide shot where you see him playing, but I never did the shot where you tilt from the hands playing the piano wow. up Jordan Fisher's face. Cause in my head, I just took it all for granted because I'd known him for so long. It was like, this is yeah. this guy's a superstar. Like he can dance, he can sing, he can play, he can act. It's like all of it. And I, and it's like, I essentially get, treated him like a hand double. And it's like, Oh man, I walked away from that going, I should, all I had to do was just tilt up at any point and prove it. But I think man. the world knows Jordan Fisher by now pretty well. And they know he's the real deal. Are there any other of those sort of, I mean, obviously you've got a film here that you should be incredibly proud of, but it is always the director's dilemma that there are things that you wish you could have changed or you had more time to tackle. Like, are there any of those niggles for you with this film that, that, uh, that linger? I, I think that, you know, I, I feel like we made all the right omissions, all, all the right tightening. Like there, there, there are lots of, pretty fantastic this the scene that we're looking at right now is an important one okay so uh, this is where Laura Jean is starting to talk about what it's like to be physical you know with with uh Peter and Chris her best friend also has opinions about that and and also they're talking about what it means for Laura Jean to also take care of herself physically and you know and that's something that is you tiptoe around a little bit for in, in movies like this but but for all the right reasons this kind of scene needs to be in a movie like this so that, that everybody can feel comfortable in their own bodies and make choices about their own bodies and um and and so this bec becomes a, a part of a longer arc with Lara Jean about how and why and where she'll she may or may not decide to be intimate with with peter and and one of the things that didn't make this cut is is that she has that conversation with her sister margo and she also had that conversation with stormy but the best of those conversations in this movie was with peter and that scene hasn't come up yet but it's when they're in the jeep and after a party and they talk about, about the fact that Peter's had sex before and Lara Jean hasn't. And that scene was so strong and it, it kind of did it all that the other two felt redundant by comparison when they were in the film. They're in the books. And of course, we want Margot to be someone that Lara Jean would talk to about this stuff. And Stormy is a strong character. You want, you want 
Stormy to be a part of that too. But in the scope of the film, it just, we felt like we already had that talk. And so we didn't include it, but they're important conversations to have. And when you look at the, again, I, I, I'd say again, this is the second act of the full Lara Jean experience, this movie, the PS I Still Love You. The, the first act, the, the first film, also deals with Lara Jean's impressions of sex, that she kisses a boy in a hot tub and suddenly everybody thinks that she had sex and she's shamed for it and it's kind of icky and it doesn't feel though like she's had like a not so great experience with physical intimacy because it's all put out on display. And so these three movies seen together are, a, are an exploration of that, even though that's not the plot, number one plot, it's a part of that. And so I wouldn't call it an omission, but there are little things like that that you really would like to explore more and you, you do your best to be efficient and good to the good to the story and the and the character arcs that are first and foremost there's another scene coming up that i'm glad we held on to because uh, uh there's her friend lucas who in the in the first movie she had written a you realize she'd written a love letter to and then realizes that lucas is gay and and in this movie she's talking about oh how hard it is to have two boys like her and he says, you don't know how easy you have it. Like there's only two guys in the whole school who, who I have the option of being into. And, and while that may not be front and center on a plot perspective by any means, it's really important to the themes of the movie that, that we're talking about what it means to be in love and what it means to have complicated feelings to, about somebody and, and how you navigate that as an adult or somebody in high school like you know and and so we held on to that one even though sometimes you there are voices who say let's be more efficient and this isn't part of the plot and you know it's like no this this is maybe it's not plot but it is important and we kept it i'm also glad that you kept in the french toast and deviled egg uh, <laughs> halloween costumes that we're seeing on screen right now are they from the book or is that something from your childhood that that's not me that, those are some really cool you know like I, I mentioned her earlier but robin marshall and and um i this scene actually we we had a different flashback for this and that that we were planning on doing that was from the book in the book uh lara jean and john ambrose meet on a soccer field in the rain and the joy of it was more about seeing john ambrose as a as a boy, like sort of in the, in, in, in his joy, she fell for him. And they're running around in the rain together and it is this, this beautiful, innocent moment and that's when she fell for him. When we, we, when we shot that and when we, and when we cut it in, it, it, there were a lot of reasons it just didn't work, it didn't feel right. And, uh, and so this scene that's in the movie now was actually uh, something that came to us later and it was a, more about them cr being creative hearts that were bonded, you know, and, and that was attractive to them, you know, not a physical way, but in this way that like they felt, they felt like they were souls, you know, partners in that. And, and, uh, and it's, it's super cute as well. I think that the, the costumes were, ideas from Robin and Katie Lovejoy, maybe, who, well, who wrote the third one. So I, I can't say enough, you know, there's just so many creative 
smart people who are always trying to make these movies better and we're just in rooms or on the phone or wherever and just like throwing ideas out there the wardrobe uh it, it was something that you know i'm never going to be the one to dress any of these characters like i wear the same thing every day and and i'm and i i just can't say enough about lorraine carson and aubrey bendix and uh, you know the, the people who had eyes on this for both for style and for color but that's how that stuff comes together it's a really smart change with their backstory and how they came to find each other uh because it is something that stands in opposition to what peter's all about right you yes. know the, the the chemistry between lara and peter is all about opposites attracting you know that's what the first film's about that there's no world in which it makes sense that they should be together except that they're soulmates uh but then the perfect thing to come in and upset that is somebody that is a perfect fit with what lara might have thought that she needed uh so i think that's that's fascinating uh and it seems so by design and perfectly integrated in the end product but it's it's eye-opening and interesting that you're still working out exactly how to get that story told while making the film and doing the reshoot it's like identifying the problem and then identifying the solution and then fixing it you know uh i think that's really smart like what were there other things that you were changing in in pickups like what were the scale of, of the pickups that you guys were doing very minor you know most of the pickups on both on the movies was about improving it not necessarily you know like oh wow that's a mistake you know, like it it, it yeah. just was like oh here's a discovery and we would be wise to push this and make it stronger because otherwise it might get missed or it just might not nail the emotion you know uh there's uh, there's a very critical scene actually in and it's uh, involving stormy that uh that we we added that wasn't part of the original script you know and and that just comes from living in the story every day and cutting while we're shooting and having eyes open and keeping a dialogue going and and trying as hard as you can to be aware of it while you're doing it before you run out the clock you know and we also had the benefit i will say the bonus here is that we were shooting movie two and three mostly back to back so we had a pretty good idea of what two was while we were shooting three and we're able to to do some setups that wouldn't be paid off until three and you know we knew that and you so went full we, back to the future on this i love that yeah it was it was a very they they fed each other you know when there were days when we were shooting movie three and i would get bogged down and you know production gets it's hard and and you're just sort of weary and i go i go to the, the edit on movie two and it would reset me It'd be like okay here's where we are and this is what we care about and sometimes we, we kick ideas back and forth between those two worlds that was pretty great so you were literally cutting this movie while shooting the third yes is that what you're saying and but but there was a gap or did you literally wrap the second film and go straight into shooting the third or, or was there a, a window for your sanity there was no window we we i think we took a weekend off and then we wow. we went right into three we didn't go into production on three. that's a lot we, we went into a full-blown prep Three was a three is a different animal because we shot in three countries and um, and so it was it was a just a bigger thing to take on but there was no break we we didn't finish until it was a full year of 
of work. But we were editing too, and because we were there, we were, we were able to peek in on, on the real status of two and say, oh, you know what two could really use? This. And then while we were shooting three, we could shoot for it. We would shoot for two and go like, oh, let's just do that little piece and throw it back into two. Well, if I can get on my soapbox for a second, like the, the idea that there's any stigma around additional photography or pickups makes no sense to me because that is the creative process, right? Like uh, you don't shoot one take and then move on. It's a process of creative adaptation and learning and kind of responsiveness to what you're seeing. So that you, you, as you're editing the film, you get inspired by what the film really wants to be and what it really is. And so if you've got the opportunity to kind of keep driving towards that bullseye, by doing some extra shooting, anyone would be mad to miss that opportunity. And like, you can see how it pays dividends. Like, I'm interested to know which scene is the stormy scene that you went and picked up. It's, it's the, it's their final scene at the, at the Bellevue when she says, go, go get you in the view. hallway. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's great. It's a great scene. It wasn't, you know, there, there was a, uh, and I'm going back to what you said. I completely agree. There's no if there's a stigma. It's like you know if we were all geniuses going in and knew exactly what shots and scenes and everything. You know, then every movie would be perfect, and we would never you know. But that's part of part of building it is knowing what it is and knowing what it isn't. And sometimes those scenes that were designed to be a thing, you know, as you edit, you realize you know this isn't. Does, either doesn't matter as much or it matters in a different way. And like you, you try to prepare yourself. One of the things that I'm really grateful for that I, that I saw directors do while I was working as a cinematographer, but I, I was also reminded by uh, Matt Kaplan and Robin Marshall because they would be with me as very supportive producers. They would say, you know what? Early on, like the first week of, of production, they would, they would say, you might want to just get a take like just get a different take, just get a something else, just something else that isn't what you think you need, set them free, you know, whatever that means. And, and I knew that, but I, but it, it wasn't a muscle that I had developed as a director. And I'm really glad that, that they reminded me of that and encouraged me to do it and didn't put the pressure on me to move on because of time or whatever it was. It was like, no, let's do, let's do one or two more, get some options. And in comedy, especially, that's a saver in the edit room. And it's it, even to the degree that sometimes we would need Lara Jean to be to be more thoughtful in a moment or, to, you know, it's like, this can't be so heavy. Let's lighten it with just the reaction. You know, and those extra takes save you because you need the button on the scene or you just need to lighten it a little, even though what you're talking about might be heavy. Like in this scene we're, we're looking at now in the Jeep um, with the fantasy Jen in the back seat. It was like sometimes you're talking about something pretty serious, but you got to it's, it's to all the boys. So you got to you got to keep it light. And and tonally, that's a, a thing you have a line you have to walk. And I would much rather have an extra couple takes and have the ability to tweak it later. And I, I carried that in the rest of the work. Speaking of covering yourself, how are you covering these scenes? Like, is it single camera the whole time or are you running a couple of cameras for certain things? Two cameras most of the time. It's tricky onto all the boys because I, the aesthetic 
wants the camera to be close to the eye line, wants the camera to be physically close to the actors. So it's a wider lens proximity to the thing. We don't do a lot of over the shoulders. We do a lot of clean frames. And that's because we want to feel the intimacy to the character's choices. And, and I think that it helps tell you who to care about in some of these scenes, just that little, those little choices that we would make. Um, I mean, we're obviously that, incredibly cramped quarters right now in the Jeep, but is this something that you would shoot with two cameras for performance? So they're in sync or is it just too tight to get two cameras in there? That would be too tight. That would have been a single, single camera night. But a lot of times what's also helpful is um, I love the graphic frame. So, you know, a lot of, for the most part, I would, I would create the camera rule that the camera is for the most part, it's, either perpendicular or parallel to the axis, but rarely would we ever do something on a diagonal. So we do, we do profiles or we do frontals, but we don't like the three quarter quite as much. We do it, but not all the time. And sometimes what's, what I find interesting about that rule is that when you do decide to go into a slightly more classic cinematic approach, it, it grounds it in a different way. And so as the evolution of these, these stories go on, I, I do make the choice sometimes to, to go into over the shoulders because it shows a level of maturity to Lara Jean, a perceived level of maturity. There's something about it that, that stops it from being presentational and, um, you know, I think maybe that's just me. Maybe that's just way too well, conscious, but that's the choice. It slips into the language of reality versus sort of stylized fantasy, like you were talking about before, which yeah. I think does make sense. You know, that Lara Jean's coming out of this sort of idealized version of romance and life yes. and kind of getting into the nitty gritty. Things aren't quite as clean, you know, to use the framing language. Um, so very smart, sir. Wow. I like it. And so we didn't get to talk about Bellevue before, but we're back at Bellevue now. Uh, where is this incredible location? Also in Vancouver. I don't recall exactly where, but it's a pretty, pretty spectacular little um, property. And what was fascinating is that it had been used for productions. And we, I think, are the last production to shoot there because they were actually turning it into a retirement home. And that's crazy. That, to me. I need to was, retire to Vancouver. <laughs> it was crazy to us too, because it was gorgeous. And, uh, and we knew right away that it was, it was the one. And, you know, you get into some spaces like this. And like I was saying earlier, sometimes you walk to the high school and you say, it's a blue track. It's perfect. Just put up some signs and we're done in a space like this, where you walk in and it's mostly wood and beige paint and, and that doesn't have the color pops. Then you look to, we had a terrific team, uh, Chris August, who was our production designer, and Renee Reed, who is our set decorator, and you say, bring in the color. And so all the paintings uh, Renee got and all the, you know, the, the chairs and all the little touches that you see, that's them bringing in life to a space that otherwise, it's beautiful, but not color correct. These scenes like that happen at Bellevue between uh, LJ and John Ambrose are kind of like, it's so critical because you need to believe that chemistry that might be pulling her away from Peter. Were you doing chemistry reads as part of the audition process to find your John Ambrose? 
yes, when we, we broke it down to the select few who we thought, even though, you know, I, I can say that, that Jordan was a, was the clear John Ambrose, but we, we did our due diligence, you know, like we, we brought everybody together. We read those scenes with Lana. We, we talked about it. Uh, so yeah, we, we were able to see them in the room together. As we move down into the basement of Bellevue now, is this actually the, a, a basement at Bellevue? Yeah, this is the basement in that space. And, you know, uh, Matt Kaplan fought really hard to make sure we got to go down there. It was a tricky space to shoot because it was, I feel like it was a, a speakeasy at some point. Like it had, <laughs> it had other corners of it that were, that had like pool tables and little private rooms and it was it was pretty fascinating but it was a hard place to shoot that floor was a dance floor and it had like a it had like a give in it like if you you walked on it the floor kind of bounced a little bit and it was echoey and it was like man it's going to be hard to shoot these walls are made of gold foil it's like we can't touch anything it was it was tricky but to matt's credit he said listen this place is too special let's just tiptoe around it make sure we we get down there and do it and he fought for it and it worked out one thing we haven't covered off is how many days you had to shoot this whole thing i think this was a 33 day shoot if i recall this one how yeah. does that compare to the first and the third i think the first one was like 22 or 23 and i think that the third one is 37 or 38 yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's not a lot of time. Like, I mean, by the time you get 37, 38, um, that sounds comfortable depending on the ambition, but it sounds like you're globetrotting in amongst those days, so that makes it tougher. But uh, given the level of production design and the number of characters that you guys have and stuff, like, it's how were the days for you? Were you rushing or because everybody knew exactly what they were doing, they knew the world, they knew what things had to look like, everything was pretty close when you, you rolled up and you could turn on the cameras and shoot with actors that knew what they were doing as well? It's, you know, production's always production. You know, no, nobody gives you more than you need. So, you know, and usually they're just holding you back enough that it's tight, right? So that's, and that's understandable. And that's what the way it was. But I never felt like we didn't have the time we need. And we were, we were supported. Uh, we were heard uh, both on a time front and on a location front and uh, and I'm a planner so you know this goes also back to my work with with Mike Flanagan who's also a very specific planner and, and I built a lot of those plans with him and learned so much from him there were no days where we showed up and said what are we going to do that's just not how I work I had my blocking plans and camera plans and shared them with everybody and that's what we executed and of course there's always room for discovery on the day um, and we listen to that and we have eyes open for that but for the most part we knew what we had to do did flanagan come by the set and uh backseat drive for a bit kind of cast his suspicious eye over you uh, in the director's <laughs> chair if Mike has any opinions or or thoughts about any of it, I would love to hear it because I, I, he's a genius and I think the world of him. So I, I always welcome his opinions. I didn't. I wasn't lucky enough to have him uh, on To All the Boys. We had uh, we had just wrapped Doctor Sleep, 
and uh, and I, as soon as we wrapped Doctor Sleep, he went back to, into the edit on that, and I went straight to Vancouver and started on this. So he was he was fully involved in Doctor Sleep at that point. You guys are insatiable. Like, uh, do you ever take a break? I I haven't. I think some of that is just fear for you know, maybe the well runs dry if, uh, or, you know, whatever it is, but I also really love it. And I, what's interesting about the whole journeys <clears throat> is that, um, you know, there were years where it wasn't enjoyable, you know, not in, not into all the boys or not in Hill House or in my relationship with Mike, but, you know, there were times where it, it wasn't rewarding or, or it was, didn't justify the hours that were put in you know it's like oh i don't get to be with my family and i'm there's no respect or there's there's no money or it it's not creatively rewarding or the people around are toxic and that happens and i and i get it and at, at that point it very quickly stops being a, a passion and starts being a job and I'm all for working to pay the bills. I'm all for working, take care of families. And, and that's what we do. Um, but when you're doing it 15 hours a day for months and months, it's hard. And there, and so I'll take these years where I will soak up these years where the projects and the, the work and the hours all, they're all aligned. You know, it's that joy is, is magic. And it's, it's pretty cool. So if I get to go to work with Jordan Fisher and Lana Condor and Noah Centineo and laugh all day, great. You know, like that's, that's pretty cool. Uh, you talked about the sort of the, the shape of a career and, you know, it's, it's many phases. How did you get started in this whole game? Like what was the beginning of your career? What did that look like? I, when I got out of film school, I was just trying to, put some pieces together and I, I knew I loved cinematography. I had directed a short in film school that I was very happy with, but didn't, didn't have the goal of being a director. My goal was to shoot and, and I didn't even, didn't even think about anything else. And I, I focused on that and, and was actually pretty fortunate uh, to jump into some indies. And that was, you know, way before Netflix existed and, uh, as as a production company, I should say, and and that was when you just hoped you would get a film into a festival, you know, and that was my existence for a while, and and that was great too. Like I, I met some also some some very smart filmmakers and learned a bunch. I made a movie with Sean Koo called Beautiful Boy that I'm very proud to be a part of, uh, and several others that are that are worth seeing. Adam Sulky directed a movie called Dare. Uh, where, you know, at, at that time it was Emmy Rossum and Zach Guilford and it was Rooney Mara before she was in the Dragon Tattoo and uh, all, all these little little ones that, that were great and are still great. I'm still proud of them. And then there was the transition out of that indie world into into what was essentially like a, not horror horror, but like a ghost story kind of horror. And it was hard to get out of it once I was in it. And, and that was sort of the dark, the dark phase. What were the sort of turning points then, as you look back, like marking those changes? I mean, obviously doing Dr. Sleep must've been a huge thing 
playing in a different ball ground on the hallowed earth of Stanley Kubrick and uh, Stephen King, although you'd been on Stephen King's turf a couple of times before. Um, I imagine that's a, that's a turning point. And then, you know, we, we talked about this project being quite different to that horror stuff that you've been doing. You know, if you were to provide some advice to people uh, about navigating a career, like uh, what are your tips? And then what were those sort of like hallmark moments for you that kind of allowed you to turn left when people expected you to keep going right? I, I think the times when I stumbled were the times I didn't listen to myself. I listened to my instincts, you know, where I, I took a project out of fear. Um, you know, I took a project out of, you know, strictly because um, it paid more than something else, you know, like that, that was a bad, those were bad choices. Uh, Any time I chose what would seem to be a logical business minded career move versus the, the joy of the collaborations or the connection to the script. Anytime I chose the business over the people, it was a mistake consistently for me. Now I'm not giving advice to anybody because everybody has their own path and and that's fine. But that I learned that about myself. uh, Now I I won't make that mistake again. I've made it. I've made that mistake multiple times, which is a, which is a bummer that it's happened more than once for me, but I hope that I don't do that again. And Dr. Sleep certainly, you know, I learned a lot working on Dr. Sleep as Dr. Sleep helped prepare me for to all the boys because we made the first to all the boys. We were just trying to tell our best story and put it out there and hope that people would like it and think it was cute and it made them smile, you know, but it didn't have pressure associated with it. Dr. Sleep was huge pressure. Like Dr. Sleep was like, don't screw this up, but not only don't screw it up, make it great because there's no, there's no good. Like it's either, you know, it's gotta be great, you know, and that's a hard thing to go to work with every day. And, and so you, you, you know that, and then you set it aside and you say, I'm going to be true to this process. And I'm really going to focus on what this is and not get stuck on expectations that other people might have because our expectations for it are just as high, but we got to live up to them. And that's important. And I, so I learned a lot going through Dr. Sleep about what it means to have the eyes on you. So that when I went into all the boys, it was also that kind of a different pressure, not the 40 year pressure of Stanley Kubrick and the, the, the big scope of the world in the King created like, that's all, that's all huge, huge, huge. But also the to all the boys fans are very passionate as well. I'd say so, they're pretty vocal on Twitter and whatnot as well. <laughs> yeah, and and you know, look, we're not going to make everybody happy, and and that's okay. Like we're going to tell the version we feel is is our version, and we all care so much that we we worked hard to do it. But Doctor Sleep was a good was a a good primer for me. I mean, you said you're not out here giving out advice, but something you said then actually really resonated with me and I want to highlight it, you know, uh, if only so I'll remember it uh, and maybe it'll mean something to the audience too. But that idea that, you know, if you're dealing with pressure and expectations from the outside world, which has certainly been in my head a lot lately, uh, it's good to remember that no one wants it to be, you know, fantastic more than you. So you are already doing that. Those checks and processes are already in place to make sure that you're going to make this thing as great it can be. And any of that outside noise 
just stops you from listening to the creative instincts that you might already have. I think that's a, a good insight. Uh, while we were talking, uh, we got a, a really good look at this incredible tree house that I think everybody wishes was in their backyard uh, <laughs> growing up. Can you tell us a little bit about the tree house? Uh, I'm assuming that that was a build or did you actually find that like out the back of the Bellevue retirement home? <laughs> no, that is a build. And uh, again, Chris August, our terrific designer, um, we we talked about, as you can, like Lara Jean's bedroom, like Bellevue itself, the tree house is an idealized thing. You know, like you say, it's if I could have a tree house like that, I, you know, I would. And so everything's just a, a little bit bigger and brighter and, and more fantasy than, than real life. Uh, we found a fantastic tree, basically, and said, that looks right, you know, and it was in the backyard of the house where we shot the interiors for the, the uh, Korean New Year's with the family. So, so we just, as you do in production, you try to pair things that go nicely together. And that, that fantastic tree was where we did all the exteriors. And then we built a different interior somewhere else of the treehouse so that the walls could move and we weren't so high off the ground and it was easier to function. So Man, I hope you left that treehouse uh, behind as a gift for the homeowners. I'm pretty sure it's not there, but uh, yeah. There's probably nothing inside. It's all cardboard walls. <laughs> it's only designed to last four hours while you shot the wides. Um, this pretty is incredible stuff there. Is the piano I was seen, I was mentioning earlier where Jordan Fisher is playing this song and it is a song he wrote and, uh, and it, it, it was great. So she, it, this, we rehearsed this actually at the Sutton hotel in Vancouver. They, they had a piano and we, and that's where this all kind of came together. I'm intrigued by him writing the tune. So is that something that came out of the rehearsals? He just started noodling on the piano and you realized, you know, this is great. We could use, just this something like I, this something I you create. No, I never asked him that. It's a good question. I, I suspect based on how quickly it came that it was something that he had written prior in that because it came. It wasn't. He put it together, but I suspect he knew it pretty well coming in. People coming in to impress. It's uh, <laughs> this is the the life of a director. You know, um, you've mentioned your producers a couple of times over and, and it sounds like you worked with them prior to sitting in the director's chair. Like, how did you find that relationship changed, you know, from, from being a cinematographer to, to being a director and the depth of the collaboration that you, you might've had with those guys? It, it only changed in that we, we just spend more time together. The, the relationship was solid. It goes back to, a project I it was one of my first horror projects and uh, called Jezebel we did for Lionsgate a long a long time ago uh, Lionsgate and um, Blumhouse and then I did another one called the Lazarus effect with them and and a few others uh, before I fall which I mentioned that Rai Russo Young directed and and so we we had it was more than just working with me as a cinematographer and I, and I say that because it's important to them and producers like Trevor Macy, who, who produces all of Mike Flanagan's stuff. They're producers who care deeply about the integration of the story and the character into the, the crafts. And so we talk often about that stuff. And they were the, the few producers who were willing to bring in 
cinematographers into the creative part of the prep. Because there were that, that other, I haven't had to, to do this for a while, but there were projects early in the career where they would say, yeah, you can come in for like three weeks of, uh, I think we froze. Am I, do you still have me? Uh, yeah, I've still got you. Okay, cool. Sorry. Um, there were projects early in my career where they'd say, yeah, you can come in for like three weeks. We'll go on a scout and you'll see where everything is. And then we'll just start shooting. Like no shot lists, no, no design plan, no aesthetic plan. It was like, you know, and then like on the second day, they'd be like, so what do you want to do? I'm like, I don't know. I just read the script yesterday. You know, it's like, so, so there, there was that. And that was always a hard way to make a movie because you, you're just making it up every day and hoping you'll, you'll get everything in the can before you finish. But with, with producers like Matt Kaplan and Robin Marshall and like Trevor Macy, they understand that the success of a production, not just logistically, but also in its ability to get the stuff that's going to make a good edit, that's going to make a good movie, is about how you prep it. And so over the years, we had those discussions, and that's why I be became part of that family. And so I would say it was, an, it was just a bigger, better extension of that, honestly. It was, now it wasn't just about executing the production now it was about casting and it was about editing and about music selection and and so we're, we're family we we talk and support each other and and outside of the work too i mean the other big influence that a cinematographer can have on the the outcome of the film you know you you touched on planning uh but it's also like the choices that they make around hardware like um the way that we're going to shoot this thing the way that i'm gonna light this thing like, um, did you did you have a different perspective on your approach when you were the director as well? I mean, I can't imagine that you would. You know how long it's going to take to uh, light a scene. You know what the ramifications are of bringing in the world's biggest, you know, seventy-five millimeter camera that's going to push all of the uh, actors out of the room uh, when you're shooting a close-up. Um, but is that something that you've you've found over the years that? different approaches and different technologies can like actually change the feeling of a set, like the energy of a set and consequently the energy of what you record. I think that's a, that's a terrific observation because it's, it's, it's absolutely right that how you approach the set work does impact the result. And, and I do care deeply about that to protect the director, to protect the actors, to protect why we're there in the first place, which is the scene itself or the moment that we're capturing. And so process does inform result to, to a significant degree. And for years now, I've been at, at the place where I work in tandem with an AD to say, here, this is the order and this is the manipulation of the day that's gonna suit the work so that you're not waiting on me or so that the director's not waiting on me and, and where we're not grinding this thing to a halt. I, I wanna be the most efficient I can be, so we're shooting more, not lighting or moving stuff around more. And so I, I, you know, one of the best things about cinematography is that it's such a balance of art and craft and, and science and management and business that there's never there's never a dull part of it and the 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 construct of all of those is 
is what makes it challenging. Because if I ever dip too much into one or the other, the day gets away from you. You know, like if you just do too many takes because you're getting too picky about a thing, then you blew up the shots that you need for the scene, right? If you if you put the wrong tool in place and takes too long to have it ready, or or it's it's too grand for the moment, you're sab you sabotage, you know. And so, and I've done that. Like I I did that plenty as a young cinematographer, thinking that these things are really important, and then before you know it, you're 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 not protecting the story. So now I I especially as a director, I what's cool about directing and shooting is that I can make those choices internally, like right there in the moment, I can say, it's not worth the time. Don't do that. Or I can say, yeah, we're going to do that. That's important to the, to the big picture. That's important. Uh, I have the same relationship with Flanagan when we work together where I'm, I'm protecting him, protecting the cast every step of the way. And if confronted with that kind of choice, I know I can go to him and say, this thing that we planned on doing is going to take time. Is it worth that to you? And he'll be honest about it. I mean, the scene like the one that we're seeing now, outdoors, in the elements, full sun, uh, how do you approach a, shooting a scene like this on the, the, the time frame that you had to make this day? I'm extremely vigilant about knowing where the sun will be at every minute of a day and organizing the angles and the blocking so that we're putting ourselves in a place to get it done. So when we show up in the morning, I have a map that shows where the actors will be and what time we have to be here and what time the call should be, where the lunch break will be and where that's gonna go down. So that in this case, you know, it's an impossible earth scenario where the sun is for the most part at everyone's back in every shot. Wow, but that's every filmmaker's dream. But it looks, well done, it looks better than the alternative. And so, yeah, that, that's, kind of, that's the game almost every daylight exterior. And it's the game for every day, even if it's not exterior. But when you can't move your light, that's kind of what it is. But I take that very seriously. As you sort of look forward in your career and, and directing more films, like, do you think that your skills and background as a cinematographer will always be intertwined with being a director? Or more specifically, do you think you'll always shoot and direct the stuff that you make? Or is there a time where you might go, you know what, I'm just going to direct this one and I'm going to bring in somebody to shoot it? I, you know, I, I probably shouldn't look too far ahead to what it will be down the line, but my, but my next project I plan to direct and shoot. I think that I find a lot of comfort in the marriage of these two roles because the cinematography is an, emo is an extension from that emotional core and the behavior of the actors. And that's what I love about directing is working with the actors on what this scene is, where, we, where we're coming from, where we're going, what, how to bring that to life in a physical space. And then once you have that exploration, you can say, oh yeah, and now I get this other awesome part where I get to decide where the lens goes to help tell that story. Like that's, all of that is the joy of, of filmmaking to me. I, I don't think I'd want to give that up. And I, and maybe there'll be a time where the workload as a director is too big and to be fair to the, the work, I might make a different choice. But right now I, I think that those are just two roles I feel very comfortable 
having and allowing to inform each other. And the reason I say that though, is not just because of me, it's actually more because of the teams that I'm fortunate to work with, because I could never in a million years do that without producers who are extremely creative and smart and always pushing and always come up with great ideas and, and calling me out on the stuff that's not working. You know, like there's a, there's a, a scene at Bellevue at the end where some of, some of the stuff we were getting wasn't landing and, and, and they were the first to say, what about this? And what about this? And that kind of, that kind of collaboration is essential because it can't just be me and I wouldn't want it to be. That's not rewarding. I, when I'm shooting, I want to be that for a director to say, here's what we were going for. Are we, are we there? You know, and not, not from a performance perspective, but you know, the way that the optics are working or the lighting or whatever it is. And you know, the, I'm not going to dress anybody. So you got the wardrobe, the art department, like all these other roles give me the freedom to do both jobs, to have camera operators who are exceptional, the gaffer and the key grip. Like I, there's no way for me to to have the opportunity to do both directing and shooting if everybody else wasn't so amazing. Uh, I I do have one last question to cap off that conversation, but I don't want to let it go unnoticed that during this heartbreak sequence, when we see LJ bore, uh, pouring a bowl of cereal for the second time in the film, it's like bland, bran, <laughs> bran O's, whereas the first time it's Fruit Loops or whatever. I just love that that must have been a conversation at some point. It's like, well, would she have Fruit Loops at this time when things are sad? Yeah. Personally, I would double down on the Fruit Loops uh, in a moment of heartbreak, but I can see visually why that was the right choice um, in the color palette detail. world when you when, you know it's one of those great those great sensory experiences when you throw color at people for so long and as soon as you take it away you notice it and that's what that you know we framed it the same way in both in the fruit loops moment and this one this is the same shot it's just that now she's she's heartbroken uh, now, this I don't is one of my favorite scenes to shoot in the aquarium that this this was a special one i had a I, 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 this probably is why I also can jump between those genres, but this heartbreak is probably one of my happiest moments on set. Like there were people at the monitors crying when they broke up. I was smiling. I was like, this is the reason to make this movie. Yeah. But like this, this heartbreak, this very hard thing to do where they, they are, they don't know how to be honest with each other. And she, she doesn't know what to say to him. And so she offers the gift back and he doesn't know how to say no, even though he doesn't want that. And so, and he misreads it a little. And so he takes it back and the spiral of their inability to communicate puts them in even worse situation because coming into this, all they want to do is be together. That's all they want. And instead they get farther. And so this moment where he steps away and then the camera pulls back as his point of view and the distance created by that move. I, I shot this as an echo of the first time that they were together upstairs at the ski lodge in the first movie. They walk up the stairs together and then uh, they say goodnight and she steps, she, he steps away from her and then she goes in her bedroom. And so I shot this the same way, except that now they're breaking apart. Dude, you're playing with everyone's emotions. It's, uh, <laughs> it's brutal. 
Uh, the aquarium itself, again, this feels like a very visual choice. I'm, I'm wondering whether, is that from the book or is that, you know, the director saying we need a needle scratch this moment, get out of the, the, the high school and go somewhere that kind of really encapsulates visually what they're feeling. Oh, sorry, which are you talking about? The aquarium? Is that the right? aquarium? Yeah, like the the fact that you know that, that's just such a visually distinctive location and cho and bold choice. Like, is that something that's from the book, or is that the the director's visual eye saying, "I need a, a location and then a set of images that are worthy of this emotionally charged moment"? No, in the in the book, they break up in the hallway in in the high school, uh, but the aquarium was an idea from Matt Kaplan. He He's really good at knowing for, knowing the moments in a story that resonate and fighting to elevate them so that the moments that matter are memorable. And, and so, you know, as we were prepping, those kind of ideas get tossed around all the time. It's like, how do we make this, how do we make this a very important thing feel important? And, and that was his idea. And there were times in the prep, because budget's always a thing, where it's like, you know what, shutting down the aquarium is not very cheap. Maybe yeah, we well, I was, I was about to give Matt a standing ovation because that is such a strong choice and not yeah. certainly completely a strong creative choice, but logistically a, a terrible choice in as much that you've got no other scenes there. That doesn't look like a whole day's filming necessarily, uh, but totally worth it. Um, yeah, and, and you're paying to close the place down, like you said. So like, I, I'm sure it was an expensive choice, but like he identified and you would have known as well that that is like, that's why people, they don't realize it, but that's why they're here to watch this movie because they want to go on the emotional roller coaster, And that's the low point that's going to make the highs quite literally come the end of the film uh, really feel so great. Yeah, I, I applaud him as well for knowing when, to spend money and 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 what to fight for and even the Bellevue thing Bellevue was not a cheap location and but he knew that that was important and he fought for it so he he's really good at that and I it's, it's a as a supported player I, I can't say enough about him and, and Robin Marshall as well as, as a part of that you know the this montage where Margene uh floats down the hall and, and sings, you know, where it sort of comes out of natural life. Like we, we built a lot of those fantasy elements. Like Robin was a big part of the, of helping throw ideas at that. And so, so those are the kind of things you remember when you watch, when you watch movies like this, you, if they become too ordinary, it doesn't quite fit in the, to all the boys world. That said, this scene right here, that we're watching between Jen and Lara Jean is one of my favorites. Uh, I think they're both terrific. And it, 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 this scene and the breakup scene at the aquarium that turned out to be the aquarium uh, were, were the, and sorry, the breakup scene in the parking lot where we learn that Jen was the one who was going to meet him in the hot tub. These three scenes were the scenes that made me want to make the movie because, because it's, the idea that we're, we're all still children and Jen's still hurting from this childhood friendship that she's lost and Lara Jean coming to this realization that, that Jen is still a part of Peter's life. And yes, he did lie. And yes, you know, th those are, those are icky, 
truths about the situation, but he was he also wasn't communicating well, uh, the same way that Laura Jean wasn't communicating well about John Ambrose, and that's the messiness of what happens after the honeymoon phase, and that's what this movie is. It's all it's all second act messiness, and so if you look at it as a whole film, you know th th there's something there's something kind of rough about that. You go, oh, this isn't as bubbly and popcorny and cotton candy as movie one. It's like, yeah, it's not. And it's not, it's not supposed to be, you know, like that. We give you, we give you that in doses. We give you that in music and we give you that in some of the fun stuff that happens and the way Bellevue is and, and the star ball. And, but it's also about growing up. And that scene with Jen is very much about, about real friendship uh, coming from a, a rivalry that uh, it's a beautiful scene that one would have been one that i would have circled as well as being kind of uh, a real standout in the whole show but it's a chance too for that character jen to show us something we haven't seen before from her uh which is always fun for an audience member but i imagine for a director it's a it's a point of nervousness because like I, I guess that's something that you would have rehearsed right to find out well what does that flavor of jen look and feel like um and do, do these two how do we make that history feel so palpable and alive in the room the way that you ultimately did? Like, was that something that you just shot or was that something that you rehearsed? We rehearsed it. We, we rehearsed all the scenes that for all the right reasons, you know, where we just wanted the, everybody to feel connected to what we were doing. And we wanted everyone to feel comfortable coming in on the day. And Amelia and Lana worked hard and, and we talked about, we talked about what it means to have regrets and and how you how much courage it takes to be truthful to somebody you, you maybe don't have a good relationship with. Uh, Amelia is a terrific actress, and you know it, it's one thing she she's going to get labeled as the as the mean girl, but you know mean girls don't just show up that way like there's stuff that happens in their lives. And, I, and that's why I like that scene too, because uh, we get to, we get to see that she's hurting and that even, even the bad guys have families and parents and trauma. Uh, while we've been talking, we missed the, re the reveal of the dress, um, which like is incredible. Uh, but I imagine something that there was quite a bit of discussion about, like how many dresses were there before you settled on the one that is featured through the end of the film? I think we had two dresses that, that we considered. And um, the one before this one was, had more, more shine to it. I think it, it was, it was just a little more glitzy. Um, but before that even, there was a discussion about what this party was because in the book it's it's a it's a USO party it was more of a throwback to the to you know world war 2 we didn't feel that was appropriate and uh i didn't really want to see john ambrose in a uniform uh, I, I just a lot of things yeah. about that didn't feel right and we felt that it was better for it to be uh, to to be more elegant and be and be a little more timeless than that, I didn't want to make any statements about military or, or especially World War II. That just seemed like the wrong thing to do. So, uh, so we had a lot of discussions about what this party was, and I'm really happy with where it landed.
Plus, now you've got a great excuse to have all these incredible gl- uh, glittering stars in the background, which certainly doesn't help the, the feeling it, it, of magic. It doesn't hurt at all. It was really cool when we had our premiere in February is that Netflix had a, after the premiere, they had a party and they dressed the, the party like the star ball. So the, oh, the party was looked like this. It was pretty cool. What was the post-production process like for the film and working with Netflix uh, and with them really focused on it? Like, because it's, it's a, a marquee title for them now, you know, whereas on the first film, you guys were off doing your own thing. We talked a bit about, you know, you guys dealing with the pressure of knowing that there's a huge amount of audience expectation about this film. But what about Netflix? Like, were they, were they watching a little more closely than you might have I expected? Said- I said not not more than I expected. I, I I suspect that they were watching very closely, um, but I also know that we were very supported by every producerial and you know studio exec and and everybody involved. So uh, I I that kind of that wasn't pressure. That was just part. That was being part of a great team. And, and they, and they, we all are, you know, so, so I, I think that what was really uh, special about the process and continues to be, because I'm finishing the third movie now, um, is that we care about the details and we, we care about the, every story arc and every character arc. And we, we work, we work on it, we discuss it. And so, uh, no, I, I, I think that it, it's just a good relationship yes the expectations are high but that's a good place to be absolutely one thing we haven't talked about too much is um the book itself and and jenny han and how involved she was in the the process of adaptation looking at edits uh how how do you juggle that when it comes to adapting a a much loved book for the screen the hardest part is that there's so much great stuff in her books that making choices about what to keep and what to let go is the hard part. Like in the books, Stormy is John Ambrose's grandmother. And in the books, that's a long relationship that they have. But we didn't have that kind of screen time to develop a long relationship where they could get to know each other and Stormy could be an advocate and like that. That in in our minds made it a little messy in the film that that if Stormy was John's grandmother in the movie, that it would make it a conflict of interest. And then how could Lara Jean trust her to give her love advice if she's always going to be one step in the John Ambrose camp, you know? So, so that was, that was a tough choice to make, but, but Jenny was very involved and still is very involved and cares deeply. And they're, you know, they're her characters. It's, it's, it's her universe and uh, so grateful to, to everybody. And I, we talk all the time. Jenny's a good friend. And I mean, she's amazing. You know, like I, the, anytime I got lost or anytime I lost my way, I would use the books as a compass. Even if it wasn't part of the script, I would go back to the book and reset the character's frame of mind or, or, or just the, the space, the world, you know, and uh, you know, I, I'm, very grateful that all across this fam, this to all the boys family, that everybody cares as much and are as aligned with what it is we're making. Because I could see a version where 
you know, speaking of, we were talking about Kubrick earlier, where, where like Kubrick and King were not aligned on The Shining. That could have happened. But uh, we, we, we've, on, on this scenario, everybody's making the same movie. Um, from the, the biggest of topics to the, the most hyper-specific of topics, I want to ask about that incredible snow that we had as a backdrop for the, the big kiss between John Ambrose and Lara Jean. Um, it was just perfectly dusting the scene. Like, is there a little bit of digital touch-up going on there to get just the right amount of snow volume falling? Or is that just some snow artist that's off camera uh, <laughs> giving you just the right amount that is sort of hanging in the air perfectly and like really creating that romantic atmosphere? That's lovely. That's a mix of, of real, not real snow, but that's a mix of practical effects. In that case, it's bubbles and they're just really super tiny uh-huh. little little bubbles that that uh, are floating. But the problem with the on-set snow is that it's somewhat hard to keep consistent and uh, and it's noisy. So what we would do is we'd pump a bunch of snow in the air, turn the thing off and let it just drift through frame. But it always it wasn't always consistent. And then VFX came in and kind of cleaned it up. Oh, well, it's perfect. And And speaking of perfect, we're about to get the big final reunion here. I mean, that's that's a, a, a movie star moment there for Noah and Centino walking in. <laughs> this was important to me. This this I this was something that uh, you know the books handle this moment a bit differently. Uh, in the in the books, Peter does come to Bellevue. Largene and John do kiss in the snow, but there's a there are several scenes after this night that where John's still involved and they're, they're sort of working things out. But, but this moment where they come together, and I know I've said it a few times, but I think it's important to say that this as a second act conclusion for the whole journey is important because in the first movie, she goes to him on the field, at the lacrosse field. She shows up and says, let's do this. Uh, it's a it's a tough talk, but she's the one that has the courage to go. And in this one, she has a realization that she's got to make a change, and she goes. But that then we realize that he's also been on his way this entire time and caring about her in the most simple of ways. That even though they aren't together, that he knows that she doesn't like driving in the snow, and that matters, and he still loves her even if they aren't together, and then they both meet in that doorway. And that, that was, that's a really important uh, beat that they come together here. Uh, and also, when you think about Peter as a person, like it's one of the reasons that Peter was also there for Jen. Like he, he's not, he's, not he, he's there for Lara Jean because he loves her and he wants to be with her, but he's also there for Jen previously because he cares about Jen, doesn't, love her in the same way but it's important to him so i think that that as a merging of what's in the book and also what's right for the movie i think is a really special thing this shot i when i got the script the script actually ended in in a the first script ended in a grocery store parking lot it was a much more humble ending and i felt like as a different kind of conclusion to their love it was important that we visually represent what it means to have gone through something challenging with somebody that it it, it, and it couldn't just be like movie one where 
they kiss on a field and it's just over because we already did that and that's the honeymoon and so you, that would feel either like a parallel conclusion or not a conclusion uh, and it might be fine it might not be fine but the, the visual representation of that showed up in going back to the lantern discussion where they make their wish where he says I'm not going to break your heart and she says I promise not to break your heart which you can't promise to anybody they send their wish up into the sky away from them and that's represented by that shot overhead of them when they're looking up and the, and the camera goes away and makes them small. And then in this moment, after they've gone through a lot, learned that they've got to communicate, learned that they've, they've got to be true to each other, uh, and now, now their love is stronger and it's more of a partnership. They are the lantern and they are the thing that will elevate. And now they are part of their wish and that's them floating into the sky and into this new phase of their relationship, stronger and better for each other. So, so yeah. Ah, it's that, magic. It's uh, absolute magic, you know, both conceptually and executionally. And I'm sure rather precise when it comes to the time of day, like how did, was it a race to get it exactly that right moment or uh, did you block it? block out a bunch of time to make sure that you were going to get that right. I'm just interested to know what that afternoon or, or morning, I don't know if it was morning or afternoon that you shot it, but um, yeah. Can you tell us a bit about that day and the, the technical challenges of probably getting them clipped into a crane and whatever else was going on to make that seamless magic happen? Yeah, we, we tested it a few times. It, that was one of those things that also wasn't in the script and that, you know, and I, I, I'm pitching it to the room and it's like, okay, so we're going we're gonna to build a thing that's going to carry our two lead actors and a camera operator and hoist them 100 feet into the sky while they're kissing and make it safe and, and, and do it at this magic hour. Like, that's a thing, and that's going to cost, right? And it's like, yeah, I know it's not in the script, but here, you know, here's why I think it's important and it's the right way to end this movie. And once we could all visualize that it was it was fully supported and and it took a bit of work to build the it was a cage it was a i think it was a 12 by 12 steel cage with a a swinging door on it and the steadicam operator is a terrific operator ryan purcell walks them from the backyard where they're seeing the treehouse which represents their childhood being brought down they spent their last time in that tree house and now they're saying goodbye and and then he he the study cam operator walks them to the cage with a little ramp and hopefully it's invisible so you don't know you've stepped into the cage and then somebody below the screen closes the door somebody on either side of them clips their harnesses in because they had a little a little loop on their back and then the study cam operator also gets clipped in and then this construction crane just starts starts invisibly rising them into the sky and the hope being that you at first you're like i'm not sure what's happening like you don't like you don't expect that like that's not a thing that should be happening and then it just keeps going and going and going so we did it with uh stunt doubles first to make sure everybody was comfortable with it safe on a totally different day then we brought lana and noah and we did it with them on a totally different day make sure they were okay with being up there so high and they were and then on the day we did it at sunset and i think we did we did it like seven times and we started it with the sun still up just in case that looked cool. 
Um, and it did, it did look cool to have like the sun rays, like they break the horizon at one point. It was really sweet. And ultimately we liked the pre-dawn look the best. Well, you yeah, know, it turned out fantastically as did the whole film. Uh, and it's been such a pleasure getting this chance to break it down and hear about, you know, how it is exactly that you made magic happen in front of the cameras and then ultimately in the homes of however many millions of people have seen this film now. Uh, but thank you again for coming on the show and, and sharing your insights with us. Thank you so much for having me. You know, it's one of those, we didn't even get a chance to talk about some of the amazing music in the movie, our, our music supervisors, uh, Lindsay and Laura, just, just, I, I can't say enough about the cast and the crew and the just super talented people involved in, in making these movies. They are incredible. And uh, thank you for having me. Well, before I let you go, actually, uh, I, I can't miss the opportunity to ask, when will we see the third film? Is there a release date on the books? There is not a release date announced, but uh, it will, it'll be soon. And we're, we're very close to finishing and, and I'm excited to share it. Do you have an uh, Instagram or Twitter or anything like that that you might like to share with the audience before you go? I don't have one. I, I am I am the guy who just likes to sort of live anonymously for the most part and let the work speak for itself. But uh, but I do like these conversations a lot because it's talking about it is is a very different thing. Um, but certainly the Netflix has a great account and Lana and Noah are super involved in in uh, in their their doing a lot of good work for the world and so follow those amazing people because they have a voice and and they have a lot more to say than i do well thank you mate this has been an absolute pleasure thank you so much let's do it again we'll see you for the third one sounds great i'm there thank you mate cheers bye bye oh what a romantic way to spend an evening hey grant Oh, it couldn't have been better, Dave. You and I cuddling up on the couch while you said nothing for two hours and uh, Michael and I di dissected his work. It was as romantic as the uh, scene where Lara and Peter dissected an octopus. That's my idea of romance. Well, I think people are maybe getting a, a different uh, idea about our relationship, Grant, but I do know you actually are a romantic soul. You, you, know, you, you like a good rom-com and this is our first rom-com we've managed to have on the cast. That's right. Look, it takes a uh, it takes a romantic man to recognize a romantic moment. So I trust your assessment of the situation, Dave. Uh, and, and speaking of romantic nice men, to... I, I would say that Michael, uh, you know, he, he must have a very large romantic streak. You hear him deep dive and talk about the internal conflicts of the characters and what they needed and wanted, you know, and how they were following on their journey. I would say, because, you know, if you look at his back catalogue, like he said, a lot of it is... Uh, the darker corners of the human heart. So I'm sure it was nice to open up the windows, dust out the cobwebs and let a little love and light. Well, we all need a little bit of light in our life and a little bit of love in our life. And hopefully this podcast is bringing a little bit of love into everyone else's lives as well. But I think that's probably the end of our show then for this week. It sure is. Until next week, you can find us on Instagram. I am at Grant Spittori. And I'm at Is That You, Dave. The show has its own Instagram at The Commentary Cast, where you can feel free to stop on by, drop a comment, or suggest other films we should feature in the future. 
And speaking of love, if you want to bring a little bit of love to our lives, you can uh, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you download all your other quality podcasts. Feel free to drop us a review and share amongst your friends. Well, that's uh, that's us then, Dave. Uh, until next time, insert catchphrase here. Insert catchphrase here. I think I said catchphrase. You said catchphrase. <laughs> I think that's, that's the new catchphrase. Catchphrase. Uh, I'm, I'm leaving that in the edit. All right. Done.